and welcome to a special epic-length edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and today we have three historical novelists, Beatrice Williams, Karen White, and Lauren Willig. Beatrice and Karen have both appeared on Book Talk before to discuss their best-selling novels, Beatrice with The Summer Wives, and Karen with The Beech Trees and A Long Time Gone. New to Book Talk is Lauren Willig, who has published six standalone novels and 13 installments of her successful Pink Carnation English historical series. The three authors together have collaborated on three novels, The Forgotten Room, The Glass Ocean, and today we'll be talking about All the Ways We Said Goodbye, a novel of the Ritz Paris, which is published by Berkeley. It's a story of honor and courage as three women, each in a different era in French history, World Wars I and II, as well as the 1960s, strive for truth and autonomy while navigating a number of different battlefields. I listen to a podcast that has multiple guests on because uh, I normally have one on at a time, and they do this thing where they say, hello, this is the sound of my voice. And so I'm going to introduce each of you, and if you could say, hello, this is the sound of my voice. Okay, and then this is me pretending to be Karen. Oh. <laughs> or is it? Or is it? <laughs> First up, we have the newest writer to join us, since we've already had Karen and Beatrice on before, Lauren Willig. Hi, thank you so much for having me here. And since there are three of us talking, this is my voice for future reference. And Karen, thank you so much for coming back for the third time on Book Talk. Yeah, thanks for having me back. And this is the sound of my voice. <laughs> and Beatrice, this is your second time to be forced to chat with me. So thank you so much for coming back. It is a pleasure to return. And this is the sound of my voice. All right. This is your third book together, and you've probably addressed it a million times in other places, but humor us, please, and tell us how the unibrain works. Oh, well, do you want to hear a little bit about the origin story, and then we'll tell you how we, we it, go on about our business? Kind of because it, it sort of is relevant, because it all starts out with three writers walking into a bar. Which tells you a lot about our process. Yes, exactly. and, and a lot about the motive of um, we had of actually writing the book, and that was to get a publisher to pay for our girls' trip and our bar bill. And that's pretty much why we decided to write. And so as far as the process, we meet at some location for three days, and we plot and outline, a pretty extensive outline chapter by chapter. We choose our characters, then we go to our different parts of the world, Lauren in New York, Beatrice in Connecticut, and me in Georgia, and we write round robin, and one person starts it with a chapter, then turns it to the next person, and they write their chapter and blah, 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 and then when we finish, then we meet in another location. It's always work, 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 usually involving a spa or beach location, and then we do the final edits, and that's that. Well, you see, Karen has a hard and fast rule for these get-togethers where we plot and we edit, we can only go to places south of the Mason-Dixon line. <laughs> this is because of our editing and plotting session at the Mount Washington Hotel in, in New Hampshire in, in November, which uh, Karen, if you look at them. the photos it, it, you know, from that, it, Karen looks as if we're keeping her hostage. We got so much work done because Karen could not leave the fireside, so we just stuck a pen in her hand, and wow, we have never plotted a book as fast as we <laughs> plotted that one. Yeah, I don't do cold. I remember that Mount Washington is like the high wind speed in American history yes, was recorded there. It is. Yes. It's got the, I, I can't remember what the official catchphrase is, but it's something about the worst weather in America. Yes, and because this is a family show, I won't tell you what I call it. <laughs> that is the top of the mountain. They're at base level. Yeah. You get to watch a lot of the weather that's happening at the top. And so from now on, I pick the locations, and they're the not porch. allowed to 
make suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> now, it wasn't the bar Hemingway where y'all met for the first time, was it? No, we no. wish. It was like the bar, you know, Anaheim, California, I think. At but, a conference. You know, it's like we, we had already read each other's books, admired each other's work. You might say we had been stalked. Well, actually, Karen or Lauren wasn't doing any stalking. No, I, I was, was perfectly innocent in this. We were, so, there was Both some mutual stalking. stalking. Lauren. Uh, yeah. and, and eventually, <laughs> as you do with people you stalk, you, you eventually convinced them that your friendship was meant to be. They just uh, dangled balls of Prosecco Once the restraining orders uh, expired, uh, <laughs> it was, you know, it, it was perfect. Aside from the fact that we love each other's work, we kind of have a common approach to storytelling, which is what maybe that's sort of the bedrock of our friendship because we maybe look at the world the same way, but also how our method works so well. Because the three of us, even though we have different settings and different voices, we all have this dual or multiple narrative structure to our books that is dependent on this fascination with the back and forth of history. So how something that happened in the past to an earlier generation, the consequences reverberate down the years. So we go back and forth. And so in these books, adding that extra narrative, having each of us take one of those narratives as our own construction has just worked brilliantly. You know, we plot everything out together. We are, we create the characters together and then each one of us brings a particular voice in bringing that narrative to Although life. So when we say a particular voice, we don't necessarily mean our own individual voices you will find in our books. It's a Team W voice. Because what we discovered when we sent that very first book off to our editor, we thought it was going to be blindingly obvious from the first sentence of the first paragraph of each chapter who had written which. And our editor read the book. And when she sent the edits back, she sent them to the wrong author. And we thought, okay, maybe it's a fluke. She's having an off day. And then the book went out in the world and most of our readers started guessing, which was kind of fun. And they kept guessing wrong too. And we realized we had done something strange and wonderful. We had melded our voices mm -hmm. and come up with a new unibrain voice that was different from what we do in our own books. But it was also assisted by the fact that in our, even in our own writings, we're very character driven. And I think that's how we blended our voices. We, these characters we created together. It wasn't my character, her character, her character. It was our characters. And even though we were writing that specific character, we were telling the story through that character's viewpoint and that character had been created by all three of us. And I think that assisted with that seamlessness. My own voice varies depending on which character is animating the point of view of that particular part of the book. So it's natural for us to have a different voice for each character. And when we create these characters together, yes, you will hear echoes of our ticks that Tells. we all sort of fall back on. And my husband is very quick to be able to find out which one I've written. But I think that to the average reader and even our editors, and we, we've switched editors and now my longtime editor is the one editing our works. She still can't tell the difference. So it's really kind of neat to see how this process has stretched us and changed us as writers. And we go back to our individual works and, you know, and there's just, I think that little something extra that we've now brought to it. And I think on top of that, readers do have expectations about what our individual books are like. And you do tend to write towards expectation. Beatrice writes New England Wasp. Karen writes Southern. I usually write British characters. But when we're writing a tri book, we can take risks. We can be another type of character. We can do a different time period we can do a different voice. And we know that our two best writing friends have our backs, mm -hmm. that they're not going to let us do something that isn't good. And so you can go and try something new and create something new and use a different voice. 
when you first started off in your uh, fiction writing careers, did you find yourself kind of emulating your favorite authors and kind of adapting their voices? And maybe there's a bit of that adaptation that carried over that y'all were really good at kind of picking up on other people's voices so you could pick up on each other's? Well, you know, it's interesting. We've all done a lot of singing, vocal. I think we're all very voice sensitive. I don't think there's anything conscious that's going on. I mean, obviously, when you read a book that affects you deeply, that voice, you know, subconsciously Mm -hmm. creeps into your head and your own writing. But, you know, I think for me, you know, early in my career, voice was a revelation to me when I stopped trying to write in a certain way and just wrote in the voice of the character. And I think that sort of started happening right around sort of 100 Summers to Secret Life of Violet Grant, where I suddenly felt that I was developing my own voice that was character dependent, but had these certain, you know, what they would call in the singing world, vocal colors that were unique to me. So I think all three of us, maybe that's another thing that we have in common, is just being very sensitive to voice. Mm -hmm. And I think when I first started writing, I guess because I was a huge fan uh, when I was, you know, middle school, high school, Victoria Holt. And it was always first person. And I loved first person because at about the same time I was reading, you know, I read an article from some actor or whatever who was talking about method acting. And method actors, they become that character. And I realized when I was reading in first person, I became that character. And because to me, you know, writing, reading characters are always more important to me than plot and setting because the character, nothing else can happen if you don't have that strong character. And I think it was just sort of natural that, you know, that was my voice. My voice became the character's voice or the character's voice became my voice. And it was sort of, you couldn't tell them apart. So I think that's kind of how I started. Yeah, and for me, my very first book I thought of as an exercise in voice because it was a basically a chiclet Regency romance combo, The Secret History of the Pink Carnation. And so I had a very snarky, edgy voice for my modern first-person character, and I had a Georgette higher sort of voice for my historical characters. I remember I would sit differently when I was writing the different portions because, like Karen says, it's like method acting. You inhabit your characters, and when you're being a 20-something American in London, you hold yourself differently than when you're being a dowager duchess at a Regency <laughs> ballroom. Now, Lauren, we've heard from Karen and uh, Beatrice before about their beginnings as writers. So you have a very impressive resume with degrees from Yale and Harvard and a, and a JD from Harvard. Why did you decide to forego that and get in the muck with the fiction writers of the world? <laughs> well, you see, it actually... It's, <laughs> of the world, just not y'all, but all, every of them. See, I always feel like a bit of a ringer because I did it the other way around. When I was six, I announced to everyone that I was Gwavian novelist when I grew up. I had read E.L. Konigsberg's A Proud Taste for Scarlet and Miniver, her historical novel about Eleanor of Aquitaine, which was brilliant but snarky and funny, but also very historical and informative. And I decided I wanted to do that when I grew up. And everyone was like, yeah, yeah, you'll grow out of it. But I'm stubborn, so I didn't grow out of it. And I filled up my room growing up with manuscripts. I sent one off to Simon Schuster when I was nine, and they sent it back, and I was devastated. But I kept at it, and my cunning plan was I was going to go get a PhD in history so I could write perfectly accurate historical novels. So after my undergrad at Yale, I went off to the PhD program at the Harvard History Department so I could get my background, and I was going to write a massive English Civil War epic saga. 
Except when you're doing academic history, it gets very dry for you. My characters were thinking in footnotes. And so to entertain myself, I wrote a Napoleonic romp with spies swinging through doorways, dowager duchesses, tons of sheep jokes. It was Scarlet Pimpernel meets Julia Quinn meets Blackadder. And it was entirely for my own amusement. And so I passed it around my friends who were equally amused. And I gave it a frame character who was a disgruntled Harvard grad student because. And at the same time, I also wound up applying to law school because I realized I really did not like grading papers and teaching undergrads, which is kind of a hazard if you're going to be a history professor. Mm-hmm. And so a month before I started Harvard Law, I got a phone call from a man who said, hi, I'm an agent and I want to represent you. And I hung up because I thought it was a prank. And he called back and said, no, really, your friend Abby gave me this manuscript. And it turned out he really was an agent at a very prestigious literary agency. And two months later, my first month at Harvard Law, I had a two-book contract. And so I wound up writing three books while I was at law school and having two books come out while I was at law school. And I practiced law for a grand total of a year and a half while writing my fourth and fifth books with partners at the law firm. It was this big New York law firm coming up to me in the hallway and being like, why are you still here? If someone would pay me to write something other than briefs, I wouldn't be here. So finally, I figured I had done my bit. I would proved I could lawyer. And so I left and I've been writing full time ever since. But so for me, it was really the writing was first and all this other stuff was just sort of window dressing on the side. That two-book deal must have paid for the first semester at Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned The Scarlet Pimpernel, and that is a book that does play a role in the story. Yes. You know, The Scarlet Pimpernel is one of those iconic stories, the idea of the spy in disguise. And it's also we like when we write together to plant red herrings in our books because we know that people try to guess who wrote which portion. I wrote a 12-book series about Napoleonic spies, so I've been very closely associated professionally with the Scarlet Pimpernel and his legacy of masked men. And so when we put the Scarlet Pimpernel in this story, it's sort of, you know, maybe people will think I wrote that bit, or maybe they'll know because that bit is in there that I didn't write that bit, or maybe it's a double fake. There are three time periods in our story, 1914, 1942, and 1964. Well, we each obviously took one of those narratives, and it's a very closely guarded secret who wrote which one. And the funny thing is, it's not as if we necessarily wrote according to what our passion is or what we've written in the past, or maybe we did. Uh, <laughs> you, know, it's, I, you know, I think it's more like which character speaks to us the most. We've right. never had a conflict over who's no. going to write no. which character. And it's not necessarily the character you would think that we would write, right. uh, but sometimes it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we really Just like a, to A, a big hint, I guess, would be we wouldn't be writing collaborations if we didn't believe how important it is to stretch ourselves as writers to kind of do something outside the box or unexpected because you find when you do things like that, when you take chances with your writing, you become a better writer. So I know that when looking at characters, we don't necessarily look at, oh yeah, I've written that time period before, so I want to do that again. It's usually the opposite. Oh, I haven't done that yet. You know, we're seasoned writers. We know how to do the research and create a character that's authentic to a brand new time period to us. And mostly it's nothing to do with the setting or the time period. There's something, as we outline the book, 
book together. And that's usually an intensive three-day process with lots of coffee and lots of cocktails in someplace warm, Karen. Yes. And yes. Or at least with a roaring fire. Yes. <laughs> but what we've discovered is that over the course of plotting out the whole book together, there will be usually be one character that speaks to each of us more than the others. And it's something to do with that character's psyche. And it's not that you know one of us writes all the ingenues or one of us writes all the more mature characters. We flipped it around, but there's just something about that particular character's vulnerabilities that will speak to one of us. Yeah, we're really in the business of writing about human beings. And I think that really is sort of a not something that's connected to any particular time period. You know, I, I think that one of the, I think, mistakes that can be made in historical fiction, I'm going to very carefully couch that in the passive tense, <laughs> uh, is that we too much of the time tend to impose our own ideas on that character or else we have a sort of a fait accompli, whether we realize it or not, way of building a character. But let's not forget, for each character, whether you're in 1914 or 1942 or, you know, 1492, this is their present. This is not historical fiction to your character. This is the present in which they live. The future is not set. It is yet to be determined. You know, we are all muddling along, trying our best with whatever background or circumstances. Are. You know, that this sort of notion that somebody who had views that are not something we admire here in the 21st century could still be actually a really nice person and a really good human being. This is just what's informed their lives. So I think we just take this approach of, you know, this is a human being. And how do you how do you understand what it was like to be a human being living in that particular period and bring that to life to a modern reader? And you say it's not a historical novel for them, but almost all of these it major the characters present. have this sense of history that weighs upon them, yes. that they have the the history of the French aristocracy and yes. the hero of the battle that the Comte of Corcel was. Yeah. And even on the earliest one of these lines, they're still dealing with history. Well, they're, they're certainly aware, or Lee and Daisy in particular, whenever you're in, you know, you're living in a war, you know you're living in a moment in history. You're aware of the historical import of the times that you're living in. Babs, not so much. It's the 1960s. There's not, certainly for Babs, you know, big historical events taking place. But so. she can see all those old people yes. in Langford Hall of the, the, yes. their, their yes, portraits the being portraits. painted. The yeah. portraits. Oh, yes, mm -hmm. and she's very shaped by her ancestors and her husband's ancestors mm -hmm. and everything that's mm -hmm. come before. But I remember one of my big light bulb moments as a historical fiction writer was when I was finishing up my first book, I was living in England, and I went to a living history museum. And there were period rooms, but they had things that stretched, you know, for decades before the time of the room itself. That, of course, because people accumulate things over time. So you'd have a Georgian room, but that, that would have a Jacobean chair in it. And I realized that, of course, this is when you're writing a character, they're not only in their present, they're also in their inherited past as well, but they cannot be in our future. You can't give them a, that kind of foresight. They're shaped by everything that came before, but they don't have a crystal ball. And even our views of the past change over time. I mean, I think, say, in the 1950s, we had a particular view of the Victorians. I would say that view has shifted by now. So you also have to be aware, well, how would my character, say, in the 1920s, be looking back at, you know, the Georgian period? 
that's really the fun of creating a historical character is truly immersing yourself. And the danger, yourself. too. It and the be danger, because there's stuff you the don't know sand. you don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's where research really comes in, because we found that reading letters and diaries and memoirs, you get such a sense of how people at the time were feeling and thinking, how they would have perceived their own world. And that's why, so, for example, in all the ways we said goodbye, there is a historic talisman that travels through the three chapters, but the characters look at this talisman in very different ways. It's supposed to be a scrap of cloth dipped in the blood of Joan of Arc that was then encased in gold and jewels by our first heroine's heiress mother. But so Aurelie, our World War I character, for her, this is a magical, symbolical artifact. She believes that it really has the power. The story is if the Demoiselle de Courcel holds the talisman, France cannot fall. And Aurelie comes from a romantic generation. She believes that. That was a generation that believed you know, that the ghosts of France would come to their aid to beat off the German invaders. A generation later, when we have our World War II character, Daisy, she does not believe in the symbolic resonance of it. She's much more cynical because, Mm -hmm. you know, the the generation that grew up in the wake of the First World War was the first modern generation, capital M, modern. They were the first modernists, really. Obviously, that's bubbling up before the war, but it becomes the mainstream sort of cultural point of view in the 20s and 30s, that sort of cynicism that sort of holds holding the romanticism of the previous generation in almost contempt. Well, and also Daisy has 10 more years on her mother during her mother's timeline. Mm, exactly. So she's, she's seen a mother and experienced by more of the world. Yeah. She's and a wife and mother. She, is, she knows there are compromises to be made. Yeah, and that's something we also look at. We situate a character in their point in time, but also in their point in their lives, which affects their viewpoints. Now, the book actually begins in 1964 in the most contemporary of three timelines, and we're not even in France. We're way out in England, in Devonshire. We have Barbara Langford, and she's grieving her husband in a very British way. Yes, we joke that if you've ever watched Father Brown, you have met Babs Langford. She always wears tweeds. (laughs) She wears a scarf over her head like the queen when she drives her Land Rover, and she makes her own jam, and she always allows the gymkhana to be held on the grounds of Langford Hall. And she's very British in the fact that she has just suffered this devastating loss. Her husband was 10 years her senior. She's known him her entire life. She has loved him her entire life. This was the love of her life. And sadly, she does come to realize that she was probably not his first choice. But it's this devastating loss, but she still has this stiff upper lip. She is still going to do the gymkhana. Um, she's still going to work, you know, do the whatever for the Women's Institute. She's still wearing her tweed. She's got the dog. She's got, you know, her kids are in boarding school, but she doesn't like to acknowledge that sadness. She's, you know, wants to get over it, which is typically British, I think. It is very. You know, my father's British, and I sort of grew up with this, you know, the number one rule is do not ever be a burden on anybody else. And to be full of grief is to, you know, de facto be a burden on others because your grief, if you're imposing it on somebody, you know, you're not carrying your own burden. And you carry your own burden. You don't make someone else carry it for you. That reminds me of there was a a Peanuts collection of cartoons when I was a kid in a little mass market paper book, and Peppermint Patty said to Charlie Brown, Brown. Don't hassle me with your size, Chuck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so British of her. Yeah. So, I know. So she gets a letter in the mail from an American, Andrew Bowden, and not related to the college, <laughs> which 
does not serve him well because people then associate him with the college throughout the rest of the book. <laughs> of course, yes. If you give a negative example to people, they're only going to remember the positive part of that example. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's like when you tell your family not to call you at seven o'clock because that's when you're going to be doing a book talk and what they hear is call me at seven o'clock. Exactly. Every time. So what is he asking from Babs? So this is 1964, so we're 20 years past the end of the war. His father was OSS and worked with the resistance in France. His father was in charge of getting this talisman from a resistance spy only known as Le Fleur. And, of course, Vabs recognizes the name Le Fleur because when she was nursing her late husband back to health when he returned from the German prison camp after the war, a letter had arrived from someone signing it, I will love you forever, Le Fleur. And Babs makes the decision at that point to not give her husband, Kit, the letter. So now it's 20 years later, and this other letter arrives from Andrew Bowden, a lawyer in New York. His father, the OSS operative, has said that Lafleur was actually the greatest traitor of all. He was sent to get this talisman from Lafleur, but Lafleur never showed up. And instead, the talisman supposedly found its way into Nazi hands. So his father was discredited and called a traitor, and his father father has been trying to clear his name ever since. He's just had a heart attack. He's dying and he wants his son, Andrew Bowden, to clear his name. So he contacts Babs saying, I know your husband worked with LaFleur. Um, I need your help in finding LaFleur and finding out what really happened that night 20 years ago. Very dramatic ending when she reads that letter and then the chapter ends. And then we go back to 1914. The First World War is just a couple of months into its action, and we meet R. Lee, who is the demoiselle of the Corcel family, and she's living with her mother in Paris at the Ritz Hotel. What could be more fabulous than to be in Paris in the, the, the Belle Epoque yes. with salons and philosophers and poets everywhere. Although I gather they were more fun in the abstract than they were in real life. They're kind so, of a pain in the neck, really, yeah. because most artists of that type can be a little bit... Full Nar- of themselves. Narcissistic, a little I bit. think. Yeah. And especially be... that era. I mean, you had like Baudelaire and Rimbaud and, of course, Proust whining all the time. Exactly. And they were really rather tedious in real life. And they all liked to hang around the Ritz. And poor Orly's problem is she's not an intellectual at all. And she has this mother who is both an intellectual and an American. And she attracts all of these poets and philosophers to the Ritz. And poor Orly could not be more bored by this or more distressed. And I think also that her mother is a very strong personality. She sort of fills the room. And for someone like Orly, you know, you're always going to be in the shadow. You're never going to feel like your own person. How did Minnie Gold, her mother, end up from New York over to Paris? Well, so this was the era of the dollar heiresses, the buccaneers. So for anyone who remembers all of those Americans with new money who could not break into stodgy old Boston or New York society, but on the other hand, on the other side of the pond, there were all these impoverished aristocrats with collapsing roofs who were like, come over here. We don't care about your pedigree. We'll marry you. Was it like Churchill's mother was an American? Yes, Yes, Jenny Jenny, Jerome. And actually, we based Minnie in part on Jay Gould's daughter, Anna Gould, who came over in the 1890s and married Boniface de Castellan. 
30 years her senior and had, you know, a chateau with a collapsing roof. And it was a match made in hell because the two of them, of course, did not get along. And but he got, got his roof fixed. He got his roof fixed. And then he she blew got, through her money she got a title. on like the jockey club and, you know, courtesans and all, you know, the sorts of things on which French male aristocrats blow their money. And Anna Gould went on to become very chic, very fashionable, the center of Paris literary society, and then got an annulment and ran off with his cousin, the Duke de Tolerant. Mm. And so Minnie, she so was she a big inspiration up, really. for Minnie Gold, who, like Anna Gould, is estranged from her husband. She's been living in the suite in the Ritz, living her own life. They do not get an annulment. They don't get divorced, but they live separately, and they only have this one child, Orly, who feels like she's really being torn apart, that she wants to be part of the old French aristocracy to which her father belongs, but which which has its own customs and traditions, you know, these big old mansions in the Faubourg Saint-Germain. And Orly, because of her American mother and the way her mother lives, is automatically suspect and is not included. The family comes from what we know as Picardy in the the north of France. What is that area like? Well, that area was a very unhappy area <laughs> during World War One yes. because they were right in the path of the invading Germans. I mean, in terms of what the area was like, one of the things that stood out from our research materials is all the stuff about the mud of Picardy. Yeah, it is it's a particularly mud. muddy region. Exactly. It's not actually that attractive. I remember reading memoirs and letters home from the First World War. They talk about all the slag heaps, you know, which is basically the sort of waste material that comes out of mines. There's mines and it's not as gorgeous. Mines. As Part of the, the issue with the phosphate mines is you work there long enough and your brain goes. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the villagers would self-medicate with this booze called Ginevra, <laughs> which is a particularly strong local tipple. Yeah. And so you had, I mean, it, it in some ways a little bit like Wales. It's not the vacation paradise yeah. part of France right. that we... Uh, Although there are some beautiful cathedrals. There are yes. some lovely parts And castles. There are gorgeous but it's medieval gloomy, castles. But rainy. it's also, it's always been a battlefield. It's always been on the path between France and these other, you know, Germany and Belgium. And so it's been crisscrossed by invaders over the centuries from the Middle Ages on. So it's that place between Paris and Provence it's where right you go. right on the path. Yeah. <laughs> yes, like drive a little faster. Her father lives at the chateau in uh, Picardie, and Arlie wants her father's approval so much. Right. And also that World War I generation was a fiercely romantic generation. And I mean, there were fascinating books we read when we were researching this about women, French women in World War I, and how so many of them wanted to model themselves on Joan of Arc mm-hmm. and fight for France, that there was this idea that World War I was almost a holy war, that they were going to prove their Frenchness. And Orly is very much part of that, particularly because she has this American mother. She feels like she needs to prove her Frenchness and take on this family heritage, which includes following Joan of Arc, and be part of the war effort. So as the Battle of the Marne takes place, there's that wonderful episode with the taxis of the Marne, where all of these taxis are ferrying men to the front. Aurelie takes advantage of the confusion to climb into her little beloved Hispano Suiza and drive out past the front, because at this point, the front has not been dug. It's all in flux This is the one month of the war when the armies are actually moving. The fascinating thing about the Battle of the Marne is, I mean, 
France is on the ropes right now. You know, the Germans are marching on to Paris, and they literally call it the miracle of the Marne because somehow, miraculously, France and then the first few British troops that are managing to make it over in time somehow managed to turn the tide. There's a wonderful book, The Guns of August, Barbara uh, that describes how this takes place and how the Marne and what happens on those battlefields it's wonderful for France in that they turn the tide, but on the other hand, it basically condemns the combatants to four long years of trench warfare, of attrition warfare that just breaks the backs of both countries. But at this point, of course, without hindsight, without our hindsight, <laughs> right. and it's, with, it's no, with no crystal yeah. ball, we can do no, no, something. they don't yeah. see exactly. this coming. And everyone thinks because European wars up to this point have not been long wars. The war to which they're all comparing this is the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871, where the Germans got all the way to Paris and there's a siege and then everyone goes home again. Their image of war is this will be a few months. It'll, It'll be, be over, over by Christmas. I mean, the British army that they sent over is called the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, because they think it's going to be a quick expedition. There's no idea that people are going to dig in and stay there. Um, it's like our own American Civil War, where everyone's like, you know, we'll be home by Christmas. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're never home by Christmas. So Ora Lee goes to the family chateau in Picardy to do her bit, not having any idea that the lines are about to close behind her. And there's a period of about two weeks where the armies are moving back and forth and no one has any idea who's where and where the lines are. And Germans are retreating one way one day, they're advancing one way the other day. And orally as they are trying to get the crops in because all the men have gone off to fight. And then the lines, as Beatrice were saying, the trenches start to be dug and she is on the wrong side of that trench line. And the Germans, as Germans like to do, occupy the castle. And you mentioned the taxis taking soldiers to the front. She decided to not let her boyfriend, Jean-Marie Daubigny, take a taxi to the front. She decides to drive him, and that's how she gets in that pickle. Oh, yes. Her father is one of the reasons that she does have this romanticism about the War of 1870. He was a hero back then, and warfare was very different. You had the cavalry, and you had men on their shiny steeds, and mechanization of war changed everything, and it was much more brutal. And World War I was a big revelation for everyone. I think something we often forget with hindsight is this was an era when most travel was still horse-borne. There was still cavalry. I mean, the French cavalry gets knocked out really early in World War I, but they go in thinking it's going to be that old model of war. I mean, that really is the transition point between... The French military schools, in fact, are all about, God, what's the word? Elan. It's all about this sort of almost almost a stylish French advance. A very you know, romantic very, way of Exactly. The pantalon rouge, the red pants that they wear. Which uh, is it's so smart to wear in this, battle. Exactly. You know, red. <laughs> they, they quickly switched over to field gray. But, I mean, the point is that, you know, they had this, you know, very romanticized notion of warfare. They just get smashed. And, and, you know, there had been, because of this long period of peace, there had been this idea, and don't forget for the British, you know, and we're not really talking about the British here, but, you know, the, the, the last really pan-European war, I mean, you're talking, you're going back 100 years to Waterloo, so there was this notion that we need to purify ourselves, that the 
current generation of young people is just decadent. They haven't had to suffer as we did. They weren't eating rats as we did during the siege of Paris. So yes, there's this notion that we need this hardship in order to make ourselves strong. And, and it seems crazy get... to us now, but there was this idea that it was going to be a good war and everyone yes. was rushing to be part of the war. And to show their elan, you know, yes. and to, to sort of attack a l'outrance, you know, to, mm -hmm. to the very limit of your physical capability. But no exactly. one had invented the idea of total warfare yet. This was inexplicable to people. This was supposed to be a clash of armies with Elan, and then it was going to be over. And then it was chemical warfare. That was the introduction of, I think, the introduction of yeah. chemical warfare. Yeah. This yeah. notion of chivalry just went out the out door. Well, it's so interesting yeah. when you talk about the French military school, because, of course, you also see similar things on the German side, where you get a clash between the old Prussian aristocrat class, the Junkers, who have their Heidelberg dueling scars from their affairs of honor, who think that things are going to be much in the same way that the French aristocrats do. But meanwhile, a new sort of bureaucratic army class has moved in. And these people, they are not Junkers. They do not have ideas of honor. They are there to get the job done. And this is one of the things our characters come up against in all the ways we said goodbye, because the men in charge, the men who are commandants of these various regions, because, of course, the Germans break everything up into administrative regions once they invade. Yes. <laughs> in their previous careers, these were not aristocratic career military noblemen. These were you know, former plumbers or accountants or whatnot, and who take a very different approach. Yeah, they're, it's a, the Bismarckian generation, you know, Bismarck was really, he sort of created this enormous bureaucracy. And well, guess what? That also is reflected in the way war is now conducted. Right. And of course, the British army and the French army were still doing promotions based on bloodline and seniority. And the German yes. army, thanks to Bismarck, was not. Right. And this was a big revelation. You couldn't the buy your commission any longer, but we weren't far past that era. I remember reading about Winston Churchill and when he was involved in the Boer War in South Africa, that officers in the British army would just kind of come and go at their will. Uh, yeah, they was not say, yeah, professional. Yeah. yeah, it was yes. basically something for younger sons to do to keep them out mm -hmm. of trouble. And it would look mm -hmm. good when they, you know, marched and in it's very dashing with their uniforms, nice uniforms. You know. and... Right, because it was always the first son got the title, the second son went into the army, and the third son went into the church. That's right. And if there were more, they probably all went into the army as well. But it was expensive because <laughs> you had to buy your commission. Right. You couldn't just sort of go to school and be commissioned as a captain. You had to buy that Captaincy. Right, and so that's sort of field promotions where you actually just got a promotion on, on merit, merit were very rare. <laughs> right. And then you didn't Required fit in with the others at the officer's mess. Yeah. Yeah. Right, you were probably right. dead by the time you'd earned it because that was how you They'd were doing it. They'd pick you off first. Right. Right. But you also look at today where we make fun of rich people who become ambassadors to foreign countries, but that's been their tradition because in the old days, the ambassador had to pay for their own mission exactly. in each of the countries. You couldn't have some impoverished, you know, middle class guy heading out there. That was yeah. how the system worked. Right. It still does, apparently. So. <laughs> well, I think we should take a break here. We've got so much more to talk about. I'd like to record a second episode. Okay. <laughs> so everybody come back next week and we'll have more from Beatrice Williams, Karen White and Lauren Willig. And we'll talk more all about all the ways we said goodbye. All right, so we'll just jump back well, into it again. Sorry, Beatrice and I can just, we can I, geek I, out about World forever. War One forever because we're <laughs> yes. both very into this. Yes, yeah, sorry. This was like sorry, Karen, the sorry. amount of research we've done into World War One between the oh two of us. Oh my gosh, it's just so fascinating. And now it's all coming back to me too, so. Yes. I know this is from was we always have what I call book lag because usually by the time we're talking about a book, we've written two others. And so you've got all the other intervening researching characters in the way, but it starts to gradually come back as you talk about it. Yeah, especially with my father's, you know, background. I mean, I was all about the 19th century growing up and the 18th century, or late, sort of late 
18th century. And then I took a class in college about this exact thing, turn of the century Europe and sort of how we made that transition from romanticism to modernism. So it just completely transformed my own interest in history. And so this suddenly became something that, think that I've been fascinated by. And in fact, all of my books are really about that sort of 1900 to 1960 and that whole unbelievable cultural transition we undertook in Western culture. So this is like, this is what gets me excited. <laughs> it's funny, for me, it was so different because my field was 16th and 17th century. And I always said I would never do anything later than 1815 because that was way the end too of contemporary. The well, exactly. But, you know, the funny thing <laughs> is, I keep being drawn to these. Almost all of my standalone novels have been 1850s to 1930s. And I think it's because when you go in not knowing as much about a topic or not having as many preconceptions, mm -hmm. you research it with fresh eyes. And it's fascinating to you. It's like picking a setting that you're not familiar with versus a setting that you are familiar with. Because if you know a place, you do have these preconceived notions. Whereas if it's brand new, I mean, then you're looking at it with fresh eyes. We wanted to visit the Ritz, but our That was the original are... plan, the original reason yes. why we yes. set this because we want, you know, it would be a tax deductible trip, but, you know, our husbands are all mean and hateful and said, no, <laughs> you cannot go there for three weeks and research. But, you know, as Lauren has pointed out several times, it, you know, visiting the Ritz today, because it's been, you know, rehauled at least twice since the 1960s, it wouldn't be the same today. But, you know, luckily it's a place that's well-researched and well-written about, and it was very easy finding, you know, the research necessary about the Ritz during those specific time periods that the novel takes And if place. you read the accounts of the people who lived there then, without actually being there in the modern setting yourself, you actually keep your version of it more true to the time. Yeah, because like all great institutions, the Ritz has adapted. But it's funny, and I want to kind of go back a little bit to what you said. And we joke about this. This is part of our sort of our talk is we joke about how our mean old husbands wouldn't let us go. To be perfectly honest, it's just that we didn't give ourselves. I mean, we, we couldn't, we could have if we want. But I think we have, as women particularly, we have a hard time giving ourselves permission. We had the perfect excuse. We are writing a book set there we probably should have found a way to go. But we feel too guilty about leaving our families behind, even for work. And we're like, oh, I can't ask, you know, my husband to babysit my parents to step in. It's just not fair. And so, whereas, you know, if our husbands had had a business thing in they Paris, they would have yeah. been gone in a second and, and not felt a grain of guilt about going for a week or two. But I did look on the Ritz website, and it's tremendously expensive. The, it is. <laughs> well, the there's we did a shared a suite. We tried on that. We could have stayed somewhere else and visited and taken us. a tour. We we could have found a way, but we didn't because I think we didn't. We never we give have ourselves sold one of your permission. Children. You have four. <laughs> there's plenty where that came from. Yes. So, but you know, we didn't give ourselves permission, and maybe we should have. Maybe you know we. I don't think that impacted it the quality it of the book. It didn't, it didn't. But, you know, it impacted I the quality of our girl trip time. It did. I sometimes go back to that and say, no, we didn't need to go. But even if we had, we, you know, just the fact that we have such a hard time giving ourselves permission to do these things. And, you know, we are here on this book tour and we're still constantly feeling the tug of guilt that we are here doing this, you know, and everybody's covering for us back home, you know. And, and then we get messages that there's no milk in the fridge for the exactly. kids. Exactly. And we're like, oh, I shouldn't be away. But then you're like, no, you know, I think, it, I think it's very tough as 
women because we are constantly told that this is our job to make sure that our families are running smoothly and we feel like we're taking time off when in fact, you know, we have these- Obligations. We, yeah, I know. And, and why isn't our work as much of a priority for us? I mean, it is, but we are always shifting everything else around uh, you to know, get, I think to it's a client. dual problem. And part of it is there's been this slew of articles recently about how women, even when they work the same jobs as men, are still working double the parenting time and all that. And the the second time. shift. Yeah. So I think it's partially that there's that whole expectation of women taking care of the kids, even when they're also in the workforce. But also there's an idea that if you work from home, if you do something like writing, you're interruptible. It's not the same mm-hmm. as going to an office where those office hours are sacrosanct. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Even if people in the office spend half their time, you're going through BuzzFeed. Right. And there's been a lot of writings recently about women of course, taking the brunt of the emotional work yes. of relationships. The, the kin work. I think the best thing, I, best phrase I've heard of is kin, kin work, work, which mm. is the community relationships, the family relationships, holding all that together. And it's mentally exhausting. and emotionally yes. exhausting. And, you know, I don't know if there's any solution for it. I mean, my husband and I, we had a very, I would almost say he did the most. He was much more into the vacuum cleaner than I was. I love to cook. So I would do the cooking and he would wash up and it was very equitable. And then we had kids. And and because I was home with the kids, suddenly all these things started falling under my umbrella. And so when, you know, my husband left his Wall Street job and started working from home, we never made that shift back to an equitable distribution of, it's not like he doesn't try and he does, but it's like I'm kind of the boss of the household. There are societal expectations that even if you, within your own partnership, try to be egalitarian, you do get things like they still call it class moms instead of class parents. Absolutely. They email the moms when you have to bring butter in for baking the next day without any advance notice. Or one of my favorite complaints that these two have heard a lot of times already was when I was on book deadline and eight months pregnant, my daughter's school signed me up to chaperone a field trip that I had not volunteered to do. And when I called them, they said, no, no, you have to do this. Your daughter, it means so much for her to have a parent there. And I said, but she has another parent. Why don't you call her father? And that just never occurred to them. Yeah, they were you like, always oh. just call the mom. And then they called my husband and my husband went on the field trip. It was all fine. But the first impulse for the teacher was to guilt trip me rather than and, ask my husband to do it. And you were eight months pregnant. I mean, you know, it's- so And it's, had a book deadline. And you had a book deadline. And everybody tries to lay down these assumptions. But the problem is that there are assumptions. You know, we don't even notice that we have them. And- you know, I mean, I, I'm the primary breadwinner in my household. And, you know, there was this sort of PTA volunteer luncheon or dinner at the end of the last school year. And I was talking about how, hey, you know, I think we need to make it more welcoming for fathers to come in, too. Because, I, you know, you, you maybe see one or two dads at the PTA meetings. And it's intimidating. Why do you want to volunteer? Because you're just be surrounded by all the moms. And, the, you know, and there was almost a bristling of that. And it's not like they don't want to be welcoming, but it's like they have their systems. They don't want to have to train a whole new group of guys, you know, <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in how we do things here in the PTA. And even the principal, who's a very nice guy, you know, we were sort of talking about how, you know, when women need to be away to do things. And I don't think he meant to use the word selfish. And he said, we all have a tendency to be selfish, but we need to put the kids first. And I'm like, Hello. I don't think I'm being selfish earning a living for my family here. That's when Karen's and my phones blew up. <laughs> I know. I was like, ah! And he's a nice guy. He didn't mean it that way exactly. But I'm not being selfish in 
pursuing this career, first of all, it's something that means so much to me, but it's also something that provides to my family. And right. But we have this residual idea of woman homemaker, man breadwinner, yeah. that we, even though I was just reading an article in the car on the way over here while these two were doing all the driving and I sat comfortably in the back. Yeah. Lauren does not have a driver's license. So. Yeah, That's why so. she writes books with us so we can drive on tour. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And but I provide the coffee. But I was reading this article that said they're actually now 50.2% of Americans in the workforce are women. There are more women in the workforce right now than there are men, but all of our systems are predicated on the idea that one parent is at home with the kids Mm -hmm. and that that parent is the mom. Mm -hmm. And so our expectations, our school scheduling, all of that has not caught up with the new realities of American life. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we realize we have it in some ways easier than most in that for the most part, except when we're on book tour and flying to a different city every day, our schedules are flexible. On the other hand, that's also a danger of what we do, because when your schedule is flexible, you run the risk of having no work time at all, because it just gets nibbled away by, well, you don't have Not to go into children, office. But, but also, I mean, I have three brothers, but my elderly parents, their care is, is 100% in my hands. So it doesn't end after childcare. Also, you have to deal with the guilt you feel of course. For when oh, yeah. you're not doing those exactly. things because I'm, I'm in a long-distance relationship, and when I visit my girlfriend, I say, you know, I'll run to the grocery store, I'll do the grocery shopping, I'll take your daughter to play practice, whatever, and she just has such a hard time letting that go because she feels she's not a good mom if she's not doing all those she's things. She's letting someone else do it. And, you know, and let's, you know, I, I do want to completely be fair. I don't want to be turn this into some sort of, you know, man-bashing society bashing <laughs> session because, you know, I think everyone's doing their best. We're all trying, and I think also that whether it's nature or nurture, men get so much of their self-esteem from working and providing and all that. And and so if they don't have that, not only does their own self-esteem suffer, you know, how, how do we get everyone to feel good about the choices that they're making? Because there are very few people who are actually on the psychopathic spectrum and people are actually trying to do their best and to fulfill all their responsibilities. And we just need to figure out how to make sure that everyone's getting their needs met or at least getting as many of their needs met as possible. And no one feels as if they're being shortchanged. But that's why we didn't go to the Ritz. <laughs> anyway, yeah. are you sorry you got us started? See, we could go on and on. But here's a question. In writing about these wealthy families in the past, especially the women who may have had staffs available to them, of course, they have many options not available to them to work outside the home and to own property on their own. But they do have staffs to help them with the domestic stuff. Do you write that and go, wow, I really wish I had... <laughs> they also had a lot more things to take care of. They didn't have microwaves or washing, washing machines, machines or, any or of that seamless good. web or, or penicillin anesthesia during childbirth. So there's pluses and minuses about those different time mm-hmm. periods. But. And it's easy for us to say, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have staff? But on the other hand, that means staff's doing work. You know, that you've got a maid who isn't with her own family. Staff need managing, and that became often a full-time job yeah, for women, exactly. too. Believe so, me, it is. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> That's a question I have is when we write about wealthy families in the past, you know, how much are we looking at the everyday lives of the people who were the, the scullery maids yeah. and the footmen mm-hmm. and such? Well, I think much more than we used to. I, I would say this current wave of, when I grew up reading historical fiction with Karen, like I was addicted to Victoria Holt and all of those other, you know, big 80s releases. And, uh, you know, those tended to focus on aristocrats, monarchs, and so on. But there's been a historical fiction renaissance recently mm-hmm. where I think the focus has been much more on downstairs, yeah. on mm-hmm. upstairs. It's about Thank you, Downton Abbey. 
me. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of the you know, ordinary people rising to circumstances in extreme times. And I would say, and even though Aurelie is aristocratic, you know, and Babs has grown up reasonably privileged and all that, I would say our characters, they are not in positions of power. They don't, for the most part, have unlimited purses and whatnot. Right. So they're very much in step with that sort of movement in historical And fiction. I would say, you know, Daisy in particular makes a conscious decision to marry somebody who is, you would say, beneath her in social status, a bureaucrat who is not making a lot of money. She is struggling to make ends meet even before the war starts when there's all these shortages. Right, he's what the French would call a petit bourgeois. Exactly. So she's made that sort of conscious choice. And so she is doing most of her own housework, I think. And it's, it's sort of a mark of status to be able to hire a girl in a few days a week to do some more of the hard labor. But she's actually working pretty hard on her own and bearing a lot of that household burden. And the child care rearing yeah. as well. And her grandmother, the Comtesse Corcel, has suffered from some reduced circumstances. Mm-hmm. She's not penniless, <laughs> but she had to downsize her suite at the She rest. did, yes. but that wasn't so <laughs> much a financial issue as, and this is kind of the fascinating thing, you know, and of course the Germans, as soon as they occupy Paris, they take over all the grand hotels for their own staff. As and they do. the Ritz, of course, being a very, you know, prestigious hotel, they are the Luftwaffe move in. But the Ritz is actually one of the very few hotels that maintains a civilian population as well, because it has two halves. If you've ever been there, there is the sort of the grander part of it, which is on the Place Vendôme. And then there's the more humble, but still very nice room that are on the Rue Cambon side, uh, which is sort of, you know, where Coco Chanel's boutique is on the Rue Cambon. So it's got two entrances. It's got essentially two separate buildings almost, separated by a courtyard and this sort of gallery. So you have the civilians on the less grand side and the, the officers of the Luftwaffe on the other side. And there are very strict rules about, you know, the, the, the officers can't wear their uniform. They can go on the other side, but they can't wear their uniforms. It has to be sort of an unofficial capacity. And then the civilians, of course, and are allowed to cross over without permission. So we've got these two little societies going on, but they're still interacting. And a lot of stuff is going on at the Ritz as a result. You have in the, uh, the what they call the little bar back then, it's now the bar Hemingway. The bartender there is literally, he's not exactly passing messages, but you might call him a post box for people who are. And all of this is going on. I mean, it's just seething. And so the more research we did, the more excited we got that, Wow, sort of by accident, we managed to stumble on a really neat location for our book because there's a lot going on there. And that mixing of French civilians and German officers makes for a very fertile uh, fictional ground. So to speak. Yes. Beyond the family being familiar from each of the time periods, there's a German man named Maximilian von Sternberg who went to the salons that many had back in the 19-teens, and he's back in Paris in 1942. Yes. He was educated. He fit in into the salon. He comes from an old German family, very aristocratic. You know, it is his duty to be a soldier, but that doesn't mean that his beliefs follow the beliefs of, you know, the Nazi party, but that is his job. But when you meet him, I guess you first meet him in 1914, and then, of course, we see him again. He's an older gentleman. He still has that very intellectual, that very stoic German military stance about him. But you also know that there's something else about him, that he's also very literate, you know, almost has a poet's soul. I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, but Max is when we were talking about sort of the old Prussian Junker nobility who were at odds with the new German regime, both in terms of the 
army structure in World War One, and then later on with the Nazis, absolutely. Yeah, the Nazis, very much a, a working class, lower middle class political movement. Well, actually, I mean, there was such conflict. I mean, Hitler did not like the old aristocracy, but they were so wealthy and they still had enough residual power. He couldn't just get rid of them. But so you had different systems basically coexisting unhappily. And a bunch of the Junker aristocrats actually got together and formed a plot to assassinate Hitler, <laughs> which of course didn't work because if it had the story of the and war, it, would be totally the, it different. was actually knife edge. I mean, it almost yes. did. They almost did get away with so it. Close. Close. It was so close. And, uh, you know, you think, well, why were, if, if they didn't like the Nazi system, why weren't they just stopping? You, know, you have to understand, I mean, the German secret police were just absolutely oh. Ruthless, and you did not know who was dangerous and who was who was informing, who was not. It was a bit like Stalin's system, where neighbors informing on neighbors. Where else would they go? I mean, the Poles go and form the Free Polish, who fight for the you know the Allies from England. But if you're a younger German aristocrat and you show up in England, that's just not going to happen because your history, you're so rooted in the idea of the fatherland, even if it's not quite the same fatherland. So poor Max is really he's in a bind. He's stuck in this world they're where looking, he doesn't I think they're looking for place. a way out, and it's very difficult. And it's not to excuse, I think, the ordinary German or even the aristocrat from going along with things. But, you know, it's a very complex cultural thing going on. And, you know, I think to what extent does someone like Max know what's going on in the camps? It's hard to say. But certainly you can be very disturbed about what has happened in your country, about the measures that are being taken against minority groups, and still sort of have to find a way to work in the system or else face your own death. And I think they all at some point come to that, okay, I need to make a decision. Am I willing to lay down my life to protest what is going on in my country or not? And Max eventually comes to that breaking point himself. And he is a man with a heart because he's read his von Clausewitz, but he's also read Schiller and Goethe as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's this marvelous Barbara Tuckman book, another Barbara Tuckman book, The Proud Tower, about the universal European aristocracy before World War I, before the lights start going off across Europe. And Max is part of that old world where they were intellectuals and romantics and they read Goethe. And you could enter a literary salon in France or England or Germany you meet the same people who are passionate about the same sorts of books and poems. And, you know, and poor Max, that's such a vanished world. Of course, Paris being such a cosmopolitan city, there are so many cosmopolitan international relationships throughout the course of the story. It seems like very rarely does someone actually marry someone from their own country. <laughs> really? Yeah, we never thought about that, but you're huh. right. Very interesting. Yes. Yeah, thinking about it. Yes, correct. I guess nothing to add on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. We're all now mentally cycling back through and the characters yeah, in the exactly. book. Yeah, how did that happen? I think it's a very sense. unsettled time, you know, it and is. I think I certainly struggled a bit as we were sort of developing Max's character. Like, wow, it's 1942. Why isn't he doing... Maybe he is doing something. And we sort of start to come to the realization, as I said, all is not what it seems. We don't ever get inside Max's head in the course of this book. So we do not know to what extent he is involved in resistance activities. How much... Or we certainly know that he is protecting Daisy as Daisy gets involved in resistance activities. How much is based on his own experience or is he just passively not reporting her? We don't know and it's hard to say without getting into Max's head but I think as we developed this character we sort of have some idea. On the face of it he is a loyal German soldier, a loyal German officer. He may not be a loyal German officer you know, with his own uh, clandestine activities. 
Now, there's another unusual man that shows up at her grandmother's suite, and it's Monsieur Le Grand. Le Grand. <laughs> Christophe Le Grand. Who works oui. at Le Mouton, Le Mouton, Mouton Noir. Noir. Yes, and he's uh, an Englishman, sort of mysterious, because we find out, and this is pretty early on, Minnie's running a resistance cell from her suite at this the is at the Ritz. Orly's mother, Daisy's grandmother. Yes, the former Minnie Gold, who is now the Comtesse. Contessa? Contessa. Comtesse de Corsel. Comtesse de Corsel. De Corsel. I do not speak French. She <laughs> speaks, uh, speaks gorgeous Franglais. I do. I do. She's very good. She's from Maurice Chevalier. And Pepe um, Le <laughs> So that's when we come, you know, pretty early on in the book, in Daisy's story. So she's the 1942 story. She's Minnie Gold's granddaughter who has been raised at the Ritz. So she has sort of an unusual upbringing. She's the one who marries the French aristocrat, Pierre. Um, well, she's not an aristocrat. No, I meant bureaucrat, yeah. excuse me. Um, not oh, an he so wishes. So, he yeah. so wishes he were, but he is a bureaucrat, a small bureaucrat, as it turns out. <laughs> Daisy finds out from her grandmother that not only is she and her children at risk because Minnie is the former Minnie Gold of Jewish descent, but she finds out that her grandmother is running a resistance cell from her suite at the Ritz. She asks Daisy for help and Daisy finds herself, you know, needing to protect her children and agrees to help grandmother. And that's how she meets Christophe Legrand, Monsieur Legrand, who is a forger. He's an English gentleman and a forger who works at the bookstore in a secret room behind bookshelves in the bookstore forging papers for Jewish refugees. Because this is right around the same time that the Nazis were beginning to show their hand, and there are big roundups. Big roundups. There's a famous mm, one uh, where they the are Valdivier. in uh, exactly in in July. Yeah, and, and that's sort of that's it's a bit of a point about. of no return where you can no longer ignore that this is going on. And from Daisy and Minnie's point of view, they realized that rank was no protector. The Baroness de Rothschild, who actually herself wasn't Jewish, but she was married to the Baron de Rothschild, she was trotted off to Ravensbrook. And so Minnie's rank as Comtesse de Courcel or you know, Daisy's as her granddaughter, those aren't going to protect them. We've basically covered the first three chapters of this book. <laughs> yeah. oh, wow. So let's, let's just get back into the 1964 timeline briefly. Babs Langford decides to go to Paris, go to the Ritz and meet Mr. Bowden, but she runs into a nice Southern belle as soon as she gets to the Ritz. Who is precious and why is she there? That's very interesting. And it actually has a Memphis connection. So when we were all at the beach house in Florida, and while we were there and we were getting our author portrait done, we stood on my next door neighbor's porch at the beach to have our photo done. And that is the author photo you see in All the Ways We Say Goodbye. She's a good friend of mine, Joan Heflin. She is from Memphis and they own that beach house. She's actually coming to our signing this evening. But she was telling me about a great aunt of hers whose name was Precious. And she was a former fashion model and rather well-known during the day. She had died rather recently, and Joan and her daughters and all the female members of the family inherited all of these gorgeous clothes. And she was showing me pictures of Precious. So we were talking about we it at the beach, and we're like, we woman. have to find a place for this character in this book that we are and plotting. And we just started plotting all the ways we said goodbye. And that's where she came from. And there was Babs, who, I mean, her tweed has tweed. This woman has <laughs> more woolly jumpers than all the sheep in Scotland. And Very so we had this stockings. thought, of, oh my gosh, what would Precious, with her wardrobe of clothes, this Southern fashion model, do? <laughs> 
when she meets Bab Langford at the Ritz in her woolly jumper. Right. Because, and, and this is something we like to bring up at every book talk, is there's so much serious, I mean, this is World War One and World War Two. These were very tragic times, a human tragedy, but, but there's always joy and hope. But, you know, life is also full of humor and humorous moments. And that's why, you know, we sort of have those moments in Bab's storyline that lighten. We know that Bab's is still, you know, guilt-ridden about that letter and she's grieving her husband. So there's always darkness, but the light moments come from the interactions with Precious. And and I thought those really needed to be in there and I think they fit in well. We had so much fun with Babs's makeover. Yeah. Yes. She was on the dowdy side before, so much so that it was, it was a camouflage. In a it was pretty much. You know, yes. I think it sort of is all about her insecurities, about her marriage and her husband and her guilt and taking a character like that. And, and we I think we love doing this in our individual books as well as in our group efforts, having two characters in opposition to women who seem very different on the outside, but it turns out they have a great many things in common. And we love doing that. And we love that sense of sisterhood. I think that, you know, this unlikely friendship between Babs and Precious is something that I think as women, we treasure, you know, those moments of finding common ground. There is no period in human existence so tragic that we are not, luckily as human beings, able to find some way, whether it's through dark humor or whether recognizing the, you know, almost absurd tragedy, that there's all these little large and small ways in which we deal with darkness and deal with difficult times. Shakespeare recognized it. We see this sort of juxtaposition of comic, ridiculous scenes with, you know, deep, tragic ones. We're not comparing ourselves to Shakespeare And we here, don't write iambic pentameter. We do not. No, no, it's part of the book. Uh, <laughs> you know, when we're the really... rest of the interpretive dance. Exactly. Right, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Is to express humanity in all of its faces and, and all of its moods. And that is, I hope, how you create a book that reflects human nature. And so in the past, we see a real person, Marcel Proust, as mentioned. Precious knows Coco Chanel at the Ritz. But there's a name that might be familiar to your readers, Prunella Schuyler. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of our comic relief. <laughs> yes, yes. 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 Prunella has followed us from book to book to book. We can't ditch her. Yeah, yeah she's still be in the next a, one. Too. She started as a bit of a villain in The Forgotten Room. And then we sort of imagine her as she goes. She starts out as, as sort of a, a Gilded Age spoiled brat. Spoiled <laughs> brat, very beautiful, always gets what she wants. And then we see her her in the glass ocean a couple decades later as a, a matron, matron, a bit disgruntled. Mm-hmm. Her marriage has obviously not gone happily for her. Now she's here, she's in the 1960s. She turns up in <laughs> yeah, the lobby us of to the, Ritz. the Paris Ritz. And it's not that we consciously say, oh, you know, let's put Prunella Schuyler in here. She just pops up. She just up. pops she up. Us. Yeah. Yes. Just, and we tried to kill her in the glass ocean, but she wouldn't die. We, so. She clung to a spar. Yeah. She clung to a spar at the, in the, the wreck of the Lusitania. So she's a bit like the unseen Prunella Schuyler, I think, at this point. And it's hilarious that she gets a typewriter to write her, exactly. her memoirs. Her memoirs. And it's, it's her, actually... I think it's Precious, right, who gives her the idea that, yeah. oh, you should write a memoir. And she's but like, oh, you're like, right. It's almost like putting a bell around the cat's neck at that point. <laughs> exactly. So you know where she so is. So we know where exactly. she is. Yeah, like, exactly. And she sits there shouting her to busy. everyone, I survived the Lusitania. Yeah. <laughs> On the cover, the subtitle is A Novel of the Ritz Paris. Does that imply that there might be more novels set 
Yeah. That was simply yeah. meant to flag because we actually had a lot of trouble with the first book because there are three authors' names on the cover. People kept saying, oh, it's an anthology. And we'd say, no, it's a novel. And they'd say, but there are three of you. So the <laughs> a novel bit is because the publisher wanted to flag to people that, no, there may be three names, but this is one book. This mm -hmm. is not an anthology. This is one complete entire interwoven story. And of the Ritz Paris as well, people like the Ritz Paris. Yeah. yeah. In the book, a signet ring plays a large role, and it's literally a signet, meaning swans, uh -huh. the younger form of swans. <laughs> Have y'all thought of making signet rings with W since you're the, the W oh, team? Oh my gosh, that is well, a great thank idea. You for that idea. Yes. I wonder if our husbands are listening. Yeah, so, yes. Christmas present. I want a little diamond in mine. <laughs> oh, sorry, of yeah. you do. Because Karen likes things simple and bare bones. Yes, there you <laughs> go. And flashy. Hey. And so, when are y'all going to break story for number four? Well, well, in fact, funny you should mention that. Funny you should mention that. We did recently come to an agreement with our publisher for the next try W book. But we um, haven't we haven't dug in and plotted it out yet, so we can only share one word about it. With the setting. And it is Newport. Newport. Rhode, Rhode Island, Island. <laughs> in the summer. Yeah, Karen has stipulated this cannot be a Christmas book because she refuses to go to Karen, Newport, Rhode Island in the Karen, winter. Karen and cold weather are not a happy no. combination. I mean, we told her Newport is gorgeous at Christmas. You know, they I don't the care. They, they, they talk about how the iguanas, when it freezes in Florida, they fall out of trees. Karen, That's uh, Karen. is very That's much... Me. I fall out of yeah. trees. Karen is a frozen yeah. iguana. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is pretty much right across the sound from where uh, the Summer Wives was set, isn't it? Yes, yeah. actually, very close. So, you know, Rhode Island they call it the, the ocean state because, in fact, that is where Long Island Sound ends and the ocean begins. Yeah, so there might be some characters. There might be water involved. There might be Maybe water and there boats. might be characters in boats and, yeah. Briefly, solo books. Do you each have one teed up and ready to come out soon? Yes. Uh, I'm yes. probably the closest. I've yeah, got, you got, got this. Uh, you know, I've got these four kids to put through college. They have my usual summer book out, although this one I feel is, it's funny, we were just talking about how hard it is for women to sort of get into that flow state for creativity and how that, you know, produces your best work. And I was able to get into a flow state for the book that is coming out in, I think, end of June, June 30th. It's called Her Last Flight. And because I had a very, very busy year, more busy than usual, I looked at the calendar and realized I had three weeks to finish a book that I had only gotten about a third of the way through. So even though I had my father coming to visit and I had three kids undergoing graduations from various levels of, of education, I had to really force myself into that flow state. And I'll tell you, this book absolutely came alive. That wonderful feeling you get when you're writing your first book and everything is just coming so naturally to you and you are effortlessly in the flow state. That is what happened with this book and the characters, the story, the language, it all just completely came alive. And I am so excited for this book that comes out at the end of June, her last flight. And Karen, what about you? It's done. It's in the hopper. We're still going back and forth on the title. It is tentatively entitled Unremembered Acts, which is shortened from Unremembered Acts of Kindness and Love, which is a line from a Wordsworth poem. And we're looking at April 2021, even though it is already done. And this is a standalone, not a trad street? It, it is a standalone. I have to write the next trad street, so I don't know when that one's coming out yet. It might be the same year, but I can't have three books out in a year because that would just be insane. But it is sort of a sequel to to my books, Falling Home and After the Rain. So we take one of the younger characters, a secondary character, Maddie Warner. She's now a young woman and she is doing an assignment in London where she is interviewing. Can I say it? 
She is interviewing a former fashion model named Precious for her 100th yes, birthday. We have gotten a lot of people saying, uh, saying what's we the deal would, with Precious? <laughs> when are you guys going to any? Are any of you going to write a book about Precious? Well, yes. Well, now in you fact, know. she's one of the favorite Spring characters from 2021. This book. Yes. So we'll be going back Precious's and forth story. to uh, the so Blitz she, in London in the building that I lived in for seven years, where Precious lived during the war, and then modern day with Maddie interviewing her in Maddie's life. So. Karen kindly let us borrow the character. We're going to need a wiki for the Wverse. <laughs> I know, yeah, really, because really there's so That's much overlap. I know it's <laughs> and uh, family trees and yeah. yes. And Lauren, what do you got coming up? Well, my next book is coming out around the same time as Karen's. It's going to be spring 2021. You're going to go off on tour without me. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll bring a Beatrice cutout with us. Yeah. Um, the tentative just tag along, fetch coffee. That would be great, and you could drive. <laughs> yes. Uh, the tentative title is Band of Sisters, and it's funny you were asking us about Picardy earlier because when we were writing all the ways we said goodbye together, one of the things we needed to know about was Christmas customs in Picardy in World War I. And we stumbled on this memoir from a Smith alum who was there in Picardy in 1917, right behind the front lines. And I read this memoir. I thought, what in the hell is she doing there? And I started digging into it. So there was a group of Smith women led by a charismatic alum who went over to the front in World War I, not to do war work, but to deliver humanitarian aid to war-ravaged villages. And their story is just amazing. So that's what my next book is about. It's about these 18 Smith women who, in defiance of all the odds, go over to France in the midst of the war to rehabilitate villages. It's an all-female group, two female doctors, you know, five girls who know how to drive, and a couple of people who have social work experience. And they drive around in their trucks. They're constantly breaking down on them, delivering medical care and supplies and good cheer while trying to navigate falling shells and also the men of the American, French, and British armies, all of whom at one point or another are trying to get them out of their war zone. So it's just the most amazing story. They were probably right to do so as well. To be fair, fair, the French actually don't want to get them out. They are charmed by this group of American college alums who have come over to do war work and they do stuff like- Bring them gifts of donkeys because they have an Mm. agricultural component. The Americans are just like, oh my God, Americans. And all of these guys start flooding to their base at a ruined chateau being like, (laughs) I have a friend who who has a friend who's engaged to someone from Smith. Can we come and have tea with you? And they actually, at one point, they have to institute a new rule that they will only have callers on Sunday because all these Canadian foresters and American engineers and everyone, they come running over and they're like, guys, we have work to do. We actually have real work to do here. We cannot just enter you and raise your morale. That's not what we're here for. <laughs> but the British, their sector switches over to the British sort of six mm, months into yeah. their tenure there. And the Brits have a stated policy of no women in the war zone. And these Smith women, it's amazing to me, they wrangled all of these permits to be there. There are very few other women where they are. And certainly no one doing anything exactly like what they're doing. And they're afraid the Brits are going to kick them out. But they actually, they managed to out-talk the Brits and stay. It's an British men, actually, British men are easily confounded by women uh, because they have this tradition of chivalry where you can't, you know, well, but the be sh- mean tradition to them. of chivalry is what works against them because there's this very strong ingrained British sentiment that if you have women and children there, you have to protect the women and children first. And so this leads to a policy of no women in the war zone because they're like, you guys are a liability. But, but when the True. women refuse to leave, you have very little like resource to well, go back. But in this on case, they actually get investigated by the British forces <laughs> who come and do the 
around and they actually decide in the end that the work they're doing is so vital and these girls can so take care of themselves exactly. that they're gonna let them stay mm. but it's sort of touch and go for a bit but anyway and there's a thrilling ending that's all drawn from the real historical record but i can't tell you anything okay <laughs> also i remember the americans were called the american expeditionary force as well as the, mm -hmm. the british mm -hmm. at that time with, with parachute well because no one thinks they're really gonna go over for real and of course you have all these americans who go over early because they don't want to miss a good war and there's this very romanticized american short. idea of france so one of the things i was researching well i was i'm a yale and one of the first groups of flyers in the war are the yale unit a bunch of yale guys who decide you know the next field in warfare is going to be flying and so they take flying lessons and they go over there and they eventually become part of lafayette espadrille and all of that but you know there are all of these americans right actually i found this fascinating because so many of them were re related to these smith women i was researching but all of these guys volunteer to do ambulance work and at one point a whole andover graduating class goes over and they're like we're here to do ambulance work and they're like i'm sorry we just have a whole class of columbia men come over we don't have enough ambulances <laughs> oh, for all of you yeah. would you mind driving supply trucks instead wow. but i mean just all of these educated upper class americans keep going over trying to volunteer and in fact france is glutted with them they have to start sending people back yeah because this goes back a you know, hundred years ago and this is all part of that romanticism you know there was a sense that the ruling class had an obligation to do these things no uh, that in, mm -hmm. exactly in in exchange for the extraordinary privilege to which you were born you have a duty to go and help and to set the example of service for others you know if you go to the ivy league colleges now and they all have these memorial walls that are just tragically full of young men who volunteered at the outset of war and died. I don't think you would see that today. Certainly your average Harvard entering class has no, no. intention of military service whatsoever, even should a war occur. You would see very few volunteering. I don't think you would see most of the Andover graduating class running exactly. over. Exactly. Just not what popular the, today exactly i'm trying to phrase it i mean but this not. is the same moment in time that where you have romantic orally and all that it's again exactly. across that, the board it's a very romantic era with a strong sense of mm -hmm. noblesse oblige and no one's met trench warfare yet yeah and it's funny because my smith girls go over in 1917 people have already started to have a good idea just how bad things are and these wonderful librarians at smith sent me photocopies of over 2,000 pages worth of letters these girls wrote and every now and then i mean most of them are hilarious it's that stiff upper lip i'm gonna tell about these horrible things, but in a really funny way. But every now and then this line comes across where like one of them said, you know, one of the Canadians asked me why we were here because it's so horrible and he wouldn't be here if he'd known. And every now and then I wonder that too. Yeah, you know, and I think we touched on this a little bit, you know, how we're always getting asked as writers of historical fiction, oh, what era would you want to live in? And we're like, none of them. You know, I want childhood vaccination. I want antibiotics. I want anesthetics. Well, because, speak and, to yourself. And, and I still want to live in the 18th century. sanitation. No, really. But no, but I mean, you know, if we were three women of the 19th century, at least one of us would have died in childbirth. Half of our children would have died before the age, attaining the age of five. You'd only have to go into a cemetery now. So I think they're living with a much greater sense of risk and death a hundred years ago than we are, we can even conceive of. So there was this sense that you could die any minute, any germ could fell you. So therefore you need 
to make your life count for something and to lay down your life for a cause seemed like a much better bet than, hey, you know, there could be a typhoid epidemic and you could just die for nothing. So there was this greater sense that your life had less value to you and it had a greater value to society. And so you had people willing to take what we would consider extraordinary risks with their lives because it was the meaning in the life that counted. I meant to bring this up earlier, but there's an amazing coincidence. A few weeks ago, I did an interview with uh, British writer Sonia Purnell, who wrote uh, this book, A Woman of No Importance, about Mm -hmm. Virginia Hall, Mm -hmm. who was an American uh, who was in the French resistance uh, early on and then later joined the OSS. Mm -hmm. The interview will air later this spring in April when the book comes out in paperback. But there is a painting of Virginia Hall at the CIA that was Mm -hmm. done recently, and its name is The Daisies Bloom at Night. That was their code for when an airdrop would happen. Uh, But I just thought it was an amazing coincidence that Daisy is a book and we have Daisy's Bloom at Night I mean, we knew that, and that's why we named... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I mean, it was partially because of Marguerite from The Scarlet Pimpernel. Right, right. But we can't give anything away. Of course we won't give anything away. Well, I would like to add that the the French had a long history of using flower names in their spy operations. Baroness Orxy did not invent The Scarlet Pimpernel. Well, she invented the man we know as the Scarlet Pimpernel, but there was actually a, a real spy known as Le Meron, the Pimpernel, and there's also Le Primrose and a whole bunch of other real floral name spies during wow. the Napoleonic Wars. Wow. Yeah. Flowers did have all that extra meaning then that we have forgotten today. So I'm sure there was a reason, a deep symbolic reason for all of these names. Uh, <laughs> and we didn't even mention that Kit's father, Bab's late husband, her father-in-law was a spy novelist himself. Exactly. And you have met him on the Lusitania. Yes. He was a Authors, it's been such a pleasure having you all here today. It was just a wonderful time. And please grant me courage to get this thing edited down to two episodes. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, good luck uh, with yes, that. We, we, we are talkers. Yes. Yeah, you could just get it, especially when we start doing our deep historical dives, because I think we could go on forever about about all of that, because we're just, you know, historians, we're, all we're doing is just waiting for an audience. Right. Yeah, um, so give us one, uh, you know, crack the door open one bit, and, and we will barge through. what we're working at the moment. Like, you don't want to get me started on my Smith women. Yeah. <laughs> but Stephen, thank and you. My, yes, as always, aviators. great questions <laughs> and great preparation. And yeah, good luck with the editing. <laughs> and alone and together, always an open invitation. Please oh, come back anytime. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. Beatrice Williams, Karen White, and Lauren Willig are the authors of All the Ways We Said Goodbye, a novel of the Ritz Paris, which is published by Berkeley. I'm Stephen Usfree, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.